Welcome to Art for Conversations, a podcast about arts and cultural management. I'm Anita Latham. And I'm Katrina Ingram. We interview leaders who help shape the world of arts and culture, sharing their stories, their insights and observations. This season has been brought to you with the support of McEwen University and the Rosé Foundation. Welcome to Art for Conversations. I'm your host, Anita Latham. Today, I'm speaking with David Stevenson. David is the Dean of Arts, Social Sciences and Management and a Professor of Cultural Policy and Arts Management at Queen Margaret University. David's research concentrates on questions of cultural participation, specifically focusing on the relationship of power and the production of value within the UK cultural sector. David is also a member of the National Partnership for Culture, which helps to inform and influence cultural policy decisions in Scotland. Welcome, David. Hello, Aletta. Pleased to be here. Uh, It's great to have you join us today in this funny little COVID world that we're in. Can you tell us a little bit about your scholarly career path? Uh, Yeah, no, certainly. Um, I guess it's not it's not straightforward, um, uh, and it's certainly not sort of linear. Um, so, I originally didn't go to university. Um, I went straight into to work, um, and I worked within kind of the, the tourism sector. I actually worked in an aquarium, um, and then kind of out of that, I knew that I was interested in kind of customer service. Um, I was interested in working with people, um, and so from that. I went to work in retailing um, and I sort of did uh, um, management development programs within that, that organisation. But alongside that, um, I also studied at the Open University. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the Open University in the UK uh, is a university that allows people to kind of uh, study at a distance and study flexibly. Um, and that was at a time before we had the internet. So we used to get exciting packages in the post where I would kind of uh, get my get my books and my assessments um, yep. kind of delivered through the mail. Um, and so I did a degree in art history um, and I became particularly interested um, in doing that uh, with kind of discussions around about museums and galleries, the spaces in which the art was um, presented, which was yeah. something I hadn't really thought about before. I certainly didn't start an undergraduate degree with that being my, my area of focus. Um, and so when I completed that, I kind of continued in various jobs. I, I worked as a consultant. I worked for the Scottish government, not in areas specifically related to, to culture. Um, but I also got involved in boards. Yeah. Um, and what I became really interested in was the way in which a lot of what I'd been trained in when I worked in retail um, that I took for granted as kind of, you know, a, a effective ways of running organisations. Yeah didn't seem to happen in the organisations that I was on the boards of. And so these are sort of cultural organisations or cultural spaces. And so I really became interested in this idea around about um, managing arts organisations. And these organisations that, you know, looked after cultural treasures, you know, we're, yeah. we're not talking about selling um, socks and pants, um, <laughs> as I was doing previously in retailing. You know, these were, you know, incredible artworks. And yet yeah. somehow the organisations weren't being managed as well. So I went back, I did a, a master's qualification um, in arts and cultural management. Yeah. And I then started to do some, some teaching work um, and realised that I kind of 
enjoyed the space. Um, and so alongside that, um, I did a PhD in, in cultural policy. Um, and I've spent most of my academic career at Queen Margaret University in Edinburgh. Um, it's, it's, a, it's an institution that I'm really passionate about. Um, but also because we've had a long-standing kind of commitment to this, this area of study. Um, and so I've moved through various jobs. I've been a lecturer, um, a senior lecturer. Um, I've been the, the head of a department. Um, and, and currently um, I'm, I'm the dean of a school, so covering a range of different subjects. Yeah, fantastic. Uh, busy, busy, but interesting career and interesting the way you talk about the flow of um, something that started quite a long time ago and it's just kind of thread through everything. How, so how has that kind of fed into your current interests and projects and what, what are you actually currently doing? Um, I mean, I guess if I, I start with what I'm currently currently looking on or, or currently focusing on in terms of research, there's two main areas of inquiry that I'm looking at just now. Um, one of them is, is around about failure, um, and in particular around about failure in cultural policy. Yeah. Um, and this comes out of a long-standing interest that I've had around about participation um, and around about the extent to which um, a lot of policies in the UK, and not only the UK, um, you'll find it in a, in a range of different countries, talks about the extent to which we're very keen to have an um, inclusive and egalitarian cultural sector. Yeah. Um, and for a long time, I've been curious why we keep doing the same things, but we don't seem to be getting any difference. So this problem, this idea that people are not taking part in, in, in certain activities, certainly in the UK has been around for 20 years. Yeah. And yet we still are doing projects that look exactly the same as the projects we were doing 20 years ago. And so there's a question there around about, are we not recognizing failure? Are we not talking about it? Or do we just not even want to uh, think about it? So... I'm working on that project um, with a colleague, um, Dr. Lily Yankovic, um, from the University of Leeds, yeah. um, and and that's that's very exciting, um, and it's something I'm excited about. And I think you know, back to your other question about does my past feed into that? I absolutely think it does. Yeah. Um, I think it causes. I think I have to be careful with it because I think what I'm driven by is training that I received in retailing and in retailing, you're interested in your audience, you're interested in what they're interested in because yeah. fundamentally, if you don't have people coming, you don't have a business. Um, and so I think that sense of being interested in the people who are coming to you does run through my own interests. Um, I think a lot of people talk about that as kind of marketization and being driven by the market. Yeah. But I guess I've always understood it as a two-way discussion and a two-way dialogue um, that, of course, you need to talk to people about what they want. But equally, even if you go to retailing, you don't just design a shop around about what people want. You have to read between the lines and you need to think, well, actually, yeah. what else is there that they want? Or they're telling me they want this, but actually, if I listen to it, maybe I can come up with something new and I can push the envelope. And so I don't see the two things as being separate. And I do think that informs where I approach my research because I am interested in, in what people are doing and, and their cultural lives that they express. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that ties into the second thing I'm doing, which is primarily um, work around about uh, cultural value, which is a kind of longstanding interest of mine, and in particular the new um, UK Centre for Cultural Value. Yeah. Um, we've talked a little bit about how you became, you know, your interest in failure, but how did it become so fine-tuned as to be such a prominent um, research area and focus? Um, 
I guess it, it kind of happened as these things do kind of iteratively um, yeah. and and to a certain extent I think in part quite a lot of the way I work is by being a little bit provocative and seeing seeing what lands um, uh, I can I can often be um, yeah I can often I can often use a provocative argument in a space to yeah. To facilitate some discussion, um, because sometimes I find that both within this field of research and within the cultural sector, um, I go to a lot of events and, and I hear a lot of the same types of narratives, the same types of discussions, even when the people are diverse. So you may see a very diverse panel, but I'm hearing a lot of the same logics. And I guess a lot of my research interests are, are about language, they're about the way that we talk about things, um, and, and they're interested in discourse. Um, and by discourse, I'm interested in what that means in terms of the logics that are underlying that. Yep, Sometimes okay. when we talk about things, there's an implicit logic behind it that none of us challenge. And so yeah. I guess um, I, I enjoy occasionally challenging those logics, um, seeing how people respond, seeing how comfortable or uncomfortable they are with them. Um, and I noticed that actually in a few events that I went to, if you said the word, well, has this project just failed? I mean, it was, it was sort of like dropping a nuclear bomb into the center of the space. You know, it was just like, you know, it wasn't a word that was, that, that people felt comfortable with yeah. or that they could, that they wanted to include in the discussion. So I got interested in that. And then um, my colleague, Leila, that I spoke about, um, yep. we have um, worked separately in the past, but I'm interested in very similar things. And, and as often happens in academia, you have casual conversations when you meet up. Um, and again, I think we've been talking about this. And you know, again, I think I said something like, you know, why do we keep doing stuff that, that fails? Yeah. Um, and so we kind of just started to riff on this idea of, of failure and about, um, and in fact, I remember the day that we, we, we met up in Leeds and we kind of started to sketch this out. Um, and I think that was where the idea of um, the title of the project that we're doing, which is called Stories of Success, Histories of Failure, yeah. um, came out, which was sort of recognising that all we ever heard was about the cultural sector being successful, um, that every project that it had done in terms of widening access appears to have worked. But if it has, why has that problem not gone away? Yeah. Um, and so it was. It was kind of that confluence, and and to be honest, it was um, it was an area within policy studies that I hadn't, again, even myself really looked at. And, yeah. and sometimes that's quite exciting when you you realise that it's not just other people that haven't thought about it; it's also you. Yeah. And I think sometimes there is an assumption that an academic um, researches something about which they already know a lot. Yeah. Whereas actually I would always argue that being an academic is about having the skills to research and to inquire and to ask questions in a methodical way that you allows you to explore this. So at the beginning, you know, I had a term, I had a kind of gut idea. And so I started to go away and look at some of the policy studies literature um, and to explore how much it had been looked at outside of cultural policy. Maybe it had been looked at in lots of other fields. And yeah. what was interesting was that... Um, it had, but not in a, any extensive way. It was, um, it, it was a term that, where it had been discussed, had primarily either been discussed on a very sort of theoretical level, but never really applied, yeah. um, or had been used quite casually. Um, and so people had sort of just, just used it without kind of exploring it. So yeah. that's always exciting for an academic as well. If you, yeah. 
if you start to do the reading and you go, oh, wait a minute, actually, I can see where there's scope here to yeah. both contribute to the literature, but also contribute to practice, because obviously I'm interested in affecting that. Yeah, it's interesting because um, being someone who's come out of quite an extensive arts management real career, um, you know, I've written grants where we've gone, oh, we're going to have thousands of people at this thing, um, hoping for the big dollar payout ticket, and then had to um, report to those grants afterwards. And certainly, uh, we certainly rounded up figures more than we rounded down figures, (laughs) let me say. And so, you know, it's, and it comes into that you know, when you're writing those reports, thinking about, well, what was cultural participation? What was it? What did people engage with? What didn't they? You know, did we count somebody ringing in to ask a question about, well, what is the exhibition going to be about? And can they enter into it? Or is there a competition? Can their children come to a training? Do we count the phone calls as cultural participation or is it people who walked in the door as cultural participation? Uh, it was always an interesting debate we always had. Uh, and certainly when I was the manager of Campbelltown Arts Centre in, in um, Australia, that was certainly a, always an interesting narrative. And so from your perspective, how would you outline cultural participation? I think for me, cultural participation is something that is relatively easy to do. Um, I think that cultural participation is something that we seek out um, as as part of a way for us to have meaningful lives. Yeah. And I think that if you take kind of culture as a as a way of living in a kind of anthropological sense, and a lot of people will then start to say, okay, well, is is brushing your teeth, you know, taking part in culture, and yeah. you can. It's, it's often very easy to kind of uh, put up the, um, the defences around about this. My argument is that, no, it's not everything that we do, but it's everything that we do that has a symbolic value um, yeah. in some way. Um, and that can change depending upon you, depending upon the group that you're part of, depending upon the community you live in, depending upon your background, your education, your yeah. ethnicity, the things that have symbolic value to us individually and collectively um, differ Um, and I think cultural participation is your interaction with those objects and processes that you recognize as being symbolically valuable both to you but to other people with whom you have um, an affinity and a relationship who you associate with. So in, a, in evaluating cultural participation in that framework, where do you think the arts and cultural sector is neglecting to take into a, what do you think they're neglecting to take into account in their evaluation of cultural participation? I guess the question is, is often framed in terms of who is or isn't coming to yeah. and then fill in the blanks with a kind of list of activities, organisations, events. Yeah. Depending on the country, it may well be that we're most interested in things that have received some public subsidy. Yes. Um, not always. In some cases, we're interested in some other activities. The difficulty, I would say, in a lot of cases, is that the, the approaches that are taken um, are approaches that are predicated upon 
pieces of research or, or widespread surveys, social surveys that have an exhaustive list. Yeah. Now, the, the difficulty with that is exactly what I just said, which is if you accept that cultural participation is something that is intersubjectively understood yeah. between a group of people um, and that that may differ, it becomes very difficult to write an exhaustive list. Yeah. Um, and so you will inevitably get into the argument of going, well, is it this or is it that? Or is it one of these or is it another one? And my frustration is what we end up with is data that, that, that tells us essentially who is or isn't likely to go to a cinema, who isn't, isn't likely to go to the theatre, who isn't, isn't likely to read a book. Yeah. Um, what it doesn't tell us is if somebody isn't doing one of those things, are they doing something in their life that they find symbolically meaningful? Um, and the reason that I would say that this really matters is that we have a lot of very well-meaning policies in the UK, uh, in Scotland and in other countries that are supposedly about supporting people's well-being, supposedly about supporting them to take part in their cultural life. Yeah. But they are predicated upon an assumption that, that certain people are essentially not doing anything yeah. or are doing nothing that they find meaningful. Now, I do not argue with the fact that the, the structural inequalities that many countries face mean that there are lots of people for whom their precarity, their shortage of income, um, their, their own living um, environment means that they are unable to, to do the things that they want to do to yeah. the extent that they would want to do them. Yeah. But we never ask them first what that is. We always assume that we know what that is for them. And again, I, I use myself as the example because, you know, I, as a middle-class white man, you know, typically fitting that space, I have disposable income, I'm educated. But fundamentally, if I, if I find myself at some point in my life in a position whereby I need somebody else to help me with my cultural participation. If they send me, or if they give me free tickets to go to the ballet or to a community arts activity, yeah. I wouldn't want them. Because fundamentally, although I think they're great, they're great things. Yeah. In terms of what really matters to me, what I would say you have to kind of fix for me, it's things like, going to see Marvel films at the cinema. I love escapism. That really matters to me. Yeah. Um, it's listening to Elaine Page on Sunday. For those of you that don't know, I know we've got an international audience. Elaine Page is a, is a musical um, uh, star within the UK. She has yeah. a program on Radio 2 on a Sunday, which is essentially musical songs. Um, you know, fundamentally for me, if someone took Elaine Page away, then, you know, I'd be really worried about that. Um, yeah. But that's what matters to me. But, but the difficulty is that as soon as your participation relies upon being facilitated by the state, yeah. your ability to express your own values to a certain extent is taken away from you. And the one thing that sticks in my mind from a piece of research that I did, and it's always stuck with me, um, was talking to a, a respondent, someone who I was interviewing, who came from a lower socioeconomic part of Scotland. So um, economically didn't have an awful lot of disposable income. Um, really, really articulate um, woman that I was speaking to about her cultural life. Um, really able to express to me what she valued. Really able to yeah. express to me the things that she, that, that really mattered to her. Yeah. 
And I remember her saying to me, she's like, do you know what? I know the museum is free. And she's like, and I'm really grateful that the museum is free because she's like, I hope that people use the museum. She was like, but me and my kids don't want to go to the museum. We want to go and see Frozen. Yeah. Um, because it was around about the time that Frozen was out. And she right. was like, I cannot afford the 50 pounds to take my children to see Frozen. Yeah. And all of their friends are talking about it at school and they feel excluded. They feel excluded from those social interactions about that cultural object. Right. Yeah. Um, and nobody cares. And, and I remember her saying, and it wasn't that she was putting it in opposition. It wasn't that she was saying Frozen's better than the museum. Yeah. What she was saying was because of my circumstances, I just have to take what's on offer. And actually what's of interest to us, it, you know, that, that's, we're yeah. not going to get help with that. We don't value it in the same way. Yeah. It's, it's really interesting um, because it's driving really um, kind of, state-assumed cultural engagement of what you should and shouldn't be engaged with. And certainly, would you say that that's also drives some of the funding that gets available to people where, you know, because I certainly know my experience has been grants are written with a very specific slant on them to be either have a youth element. Um, you know, I, you know, I've written grants where there's been really strong indigenous communities. And so it's been having indigenous engagement, but grants have been written with an assumption of, um, it's not a failure, but the assumption of the, a gap analysis that goes, these people aren't engaging with this. So if you apply for this grant, then you have to make sure you engage them. Uh, it sounds like from what you're saying that, you know, when organizations apply for grants, they have to kind of somehow massage what they're doing into what is almost a state prescribed engagement and would you say that that's kind of relevant and real going on in Scotland and does it miss the gap of what you're talking about of people going, actually, can we engage with what we want to engage with? I think it, it does. And I think that there's, there's a difficulty because as soon as you start talking about this, and I think, again, I think you sort of, you slipped into that just now, is that we start saying, you know, state sanction. And of course, as soon as people think of that they kind of imagine an autocratic state and there's yeah. you know a minister for culture that's sitting there going you know you will go and see this you won't go and see that now that isn't happening i have yeah. not encountered anybody who's doing that but what what i'm interested in particularly about this course is the way in which this happens um without us necessarily recognizing that it's happening yeah. um, and it's 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 the notion of governance it's yeah. that it's not about government it's not about people saying you should or shouldn't do this you must do this or you mustn't do that but it's the way in which the way we talk about things what we choose to fund the way in which funding applications are structured all of these small incremental things start to build up so that what what we're doing is it's not necessarily intentional but we are creating paths that say well actually we are implicitly suggesting that you should yeah. go to this, or we are saying implicitly that this matters more yeah. because there are choices involved. I mean, government is, is, is about choices. And, and what worries me with this is that it, it requires, um, or it assumes, as I say, that people aren't doing anything. And again, another one that I always remember was talking to the representatives from a minority ethnic um, arts group uh, in Glasgow and they, and they spoke a lot about constantly being invited to take part in projects being run by arts organizations in the city center yeah and they were like you know that's great they were like but 
we're doing our own arts projects and we actually just like that they funded them you know it it, it would just be nice if they if they supported what we were doing rather than asking us to do something else Um, yeah and you know it's the word invitation sounds great. You know, it's like, oh, you've invited someone, you've invited them in, yeah. you've made them welcome. Um, it doesn't, it's not a word that you kind of, you feel negatively about. Um, but again, it's this idea that there is, to a certain extent, what's understood maybe as an opportunity cost, which says, okay, your invitation's great, but in order to come and do your invitation, I have to stop doing this thing that I'm already doing that I value an awful lot. Um, yeah. And as I'm always saying to people, I think that's really important from even an arts marketing point of view. Um, and I'm always saying to students, and um, I should probably apologise to them because I'm probably creating an image that they don't want to consider. But I'm always saying that if you're asking me to come to the cinema or if you're asking me to go to the theatre, yeah. what you're actually asking me is not to have a bath with a candle and a book. Because yeah. fundamentally, that's what I want to do on a Saturday night. Um, now, if you want me to come out of my bath and go out in the cold and come to your theatre, then I need to know that it's better than the thing that I'm already doing. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, entering into that discussion with people and seeing them not as people who are not doing anything, yeah. but actually as people who are cultural participants in the same way that you are, yeah. whereby you're going, do you know what? I recognise that you've got a lot of amazing stuff going on. I'd like you to come and try this out. Yeah. Because what it also then does is invite a two-way interaction, which says, well, why don't I come to see you, but next time you come to see me? So why yeah. don't you do what we are doing? Yeah. And that, it, I mean, it's referred to within a lot of the policy literature as the deficit model, that yeah. there's an assumption that there is a deficit in certain people, there's a deficit in certain places. Um, and I guess I'm driven by this sort of uh, kind of provocation or belief that says, well, what if we flipped on its head and said, actually, there is an abundance of cultural participation. Yeah. It's just that we don't recognise it. It's a bit like dark matter. Yes. So we, we, we absolutely know and can see huge chunks of matter. Yeah. But then there's all this other stuff that we're like, mm, it's probably there, but we don't know what it is. Yeah. Cultural policy is a bit like that. Do you know what? If it's a neutron or a proton, um, I'm well out of my depth here. You can understand that's literally as far as my uh, high school physics is going to carry me. Um, But if it's those, then we recognize them. But there's all this dark matter of culture that sits around that we we are talking about as though it's a deficit when actually it's an abundance. Um, And I think it would be revolutionary if we started to look at our policy landscape through the lens of abundance. Yeah. So if you take that deficit, that notion of deficit, um, cultural availability, whatever you want to call it, how do you then define that into success and failure within the art sector? The, the difference between somebody's cultural life and yeah. policy. Because fundamentally, again, what you have is lots of overlapping parts of the, the social world. So, um, when we move into questions of success and failure, we're moving into questions of policy yeah. and the extent to which the state is involved in the lives of its citizens. You know, we live in democracies and in those democracies, there is a negotiation between the people who form those democracies and the governments that they put in place about how far that government will stretch into their lives. Yes. Um, and different countries have different opinions about it. Now, there is a sort of unwritten agreement that says if the government is going to intervene in your life in some way, then they need to be doing it in order to fix a problem, to keep you safe, to help you, um, to make you more secure, more successful, more healthy. 
So when we are in the realm of policy, and when we're talking about arts and cultural policy, yeah. fundamentally, there is an implicit assumption that there is a reason the state is involved there. Um, and that it is trying to do certain things. And it's trying yeah. to do certain things. Um, and I'm going to, you know, I, I'm, I'm not going to sort of start to critique individual governments, but I'm going to assume that the state wants the best for its citizens. Yeah. Um, so they are intervening in order to do something good for its citizens. So when it comes to something like culture, what is particular is that numerous countries, um, the UK, Scotland, Canada, you know, they all fit within this box, in some way, shape or form, have made a commitment around about supporting the cultural lives of their citizens, yeah. you know, supporting people to engage, supporting people to participate. That, that has a commitment in it. Now, different countries have uh, developed that to differing degrees. Yeah. Some of them have left it quite vague, which isn't that helpful in terms yeah. of policy. Some are more specific. Um, but once you start to break that down, you then look at the organizations you fund, you then look at some of the projects that you're funding. Yeah. Those projects are attempting to do something. Um, now, as part of that, if you're saying, well, what we want is we want to ensure that um, everybody that lives in Canada um, in 10 years' time is spending more of their week on culturally significant activities than they yeah. were doing 10 years ago. Yeah. So there is success and failure in policy terms. Yeah. Um, there may not necessarily be success or failure for the individual in terms of each interaction that they have, although we may well talk about it in those terms. But from a policy perspective, there is an objective. And yeah. so that objective can be succeeded or failed. Now, what's been interesting about our research, both looking at the existing literature and also the data that we collected, is that it's important when you're trying to think about cultural policy to not only focus on those objectives. Because, of course, people will say, but art and culture does other things as well. And so yeah. you can't just say that something was a failure because we didn't hit our policy objective. Because if you were going to say that, then, you know, we could sit here and list every single government policy objective that's been missed in the world. Yeah. You know, it just adds to a long line. Yeah. And the reality is that a lot of policies never properly succeed. They, they have degrees of success or failure. Yes. Um, and so in part, what we're trying to do is to develop a more nuanced language about success and failure within the cultural policy sector. Yeah. And so with the people that you have been focusing your research on, uh, what's been the response to what you're doing? Are they free and easy with the dialogue around failure? Um, it's been a really, it's been interesting, um, as, all, as all good research should be. Um, and we've approached it in various ways so we've we've run we've run workshops um we have done one-to-one -one interviewing yeah. um, we've done an, an anonymous survey we did that online and we also we also did it in hard copy yeah um and i mean one of the things that came up I and mean, we were very conscious from the start that this was going to be sensitive um, yeah. and that people were they were going to find it difficult. Um, and in part, we, we had assumptions about why people weren't talking about failure. And you've already talked about some of them already. The yeah. basically implicit assumption that if I put in a grant report that 15 people came to something that I said was going to have 500, yeah. I'm never going to get funding again. Yeah. And we knew, we knew that that was going to be there. Um, 
so we, we, we did quite a lot to try and make the spaces that we were in as safe as possible. So, for example, in the initial workshops, we spoke to funders separately from arts organisations, separately from artists, yeah. um, so that we tried to make sure that people were just talking to their peers. What became really striking, um, first of all, was that people just found it difficult. Um, and again, to use a kind of physics analogy, I have no idea where these are coming from today, but um, it was a little bit like kind of pushing two magnets together, yeah. where you pushed it together and it was like, let's talk about failure, and then they just miss each other. And, yeah. and it felt like people wanted to talk about it, but the minute that the fail word came up, it was kind of swapped out for could have been better or, you know, um, partial success. And all of a sudden there was just, there was a real sense of being uncomfortable. Um, and I did have a couple of, of quite um, robust interactions, I yes. would say, with, 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 with people who, who were like, why are you doing this? You know, yeah. why, what, what, you know, as though there was a sort of vendetta against the art sector. And it was rare, um, yeah. but there was, there was certainly a couple of people who, who really felt this was unnecessary. It was just unnecessarily awkward um, and there was no reason to talk about it. Um, what also struck me was that even in some of the workshops where at the end of the workshop, I thought, yep, that was great. People were really honest. They were quite open. They had the opportunity to, to write anonymously on a postcard and post it uh, into a little letterbox that we made. Um, and this was just, we kind of thought, a nice way to finish it off. Yeah. What was interesting was that to a certain extent, it became some of the most interesting data because even in those events where I thought we created quite an open discussion and what sounded like it was open, people were writing things on those postcards that they clearly couldn't say in the room. Right. And so we were getting things on those postcards that said, I lie on my evaluations all the time. Yeah. You know, um, I lie to get money, doesn't everybody? Yeah. Um, or one of the postcards said, I hate doing participatory art practice, but it's the only thing I can get funding for. And that really stuck with me as well because it just really showed how difficult it was for people to be in that space and to, to really talk honestly about failure, even when they were primarily with peers. So when, when we thought we'd kind of dealt with the, the power relationships yeah. between the different parts. Yeah. Um, and I guess the flip side though, is that one of the other things that we found once we moved into the interview stage and when we were talking to people one-to-one is that everybody really wanted to talk about it with us one-to-one. You know, it was, there was a sort of spartic experience, you know. we safe space. Well, it was, you know, it was sort of an outpouring in in, in some cases. Um, And they sort of said, yeah, we really want to talk about this. You're absolutely onto the right thing. Let's have this discussion. But then once again, there was an interesting layer in the interviews, which is although people said, I have no problem talking about failure. Yeah, let's talk about it. Let's let's have this out. Let's one-on-one. What they were actually comfortable about was talking about other people's failures. Right. And, and so a lot of the interviews were, well, let me tell you about them. And yeah. they failed. And this funder's failed. And this person's failed. And this person over here's failed. Even when there were sort of explicit questions about, well, you know, tell me about a failure that you've been involved in. Yeah it would get flipped into actually let's talk about someone else's failures. Um, so it, it has been really interesting to see uh, a kind of um, not contradictory, but, but certainly complex relationship with this term whereby people have been both simultaneously attracted to talking about it. Yeah. 
but find it very, very difficult. Yeah, it, it is an interesting topic. And you, you mentioned earlier, you know, the reason for kind of jumping into it is to look at what, what is working and what isn't working, that understanding of what people actually do and don't need. In the journey that you've both gone through, um, would you say... Um, there's further research that needs to be done. You know, what do you anticipate is out? You know, is the outcome of this body of work that you're both doing? Um, I mean, to a certain extent, probably the next stage is kind of action research to to try and make use of some of the things that we've been developing. Um, yeah. And so, we have first of all, we've developed a model, um, and we've developed a model which uh, we've entitled the Wheel of Failure. Um, which uh, which sounds like a kind of bad game show, but um, uh, but it's uh, it's it's a very robust academic model, yeah. um, and it's it's a combination both taking some pre-existing theoretical work that had been done in policy studies literature, yeah. and then looking at the analysis of the interviews for the different ways in which people talk about failure. Right. And so what we've done is we've created um, this model that has five facets of failure yeah. which are purpose participation practice process and profile yeah um, and what it says is that any project that's about cultural participation has five different areas in which people perceive it to succeed or fail yeah within each of those areas it can have degrees of success or failure so on one end there's outright failure and then it moves through a scale. So there's precarious, tolerable failure. There's then a conflicted success, resilient success, and outright success. Right, yeah. And so the model encourages people at the beginning of the process with different stakeholders to talk about what would each of those degrees of success or failure look like at the end of this. Right, okay. And to agree that upfront. So that by the time you get to the end of the project, you then map it back against those different elements to say, well, actually... In terms of our purpose, this was a resilient success. We yeah. delivered all of our objectives. You know, we said what we were going to do. In terms of our profile, it was a precarious failure because actually nobody paid any attention to it and the, um, the media didn't pick it up and actually the funder isn't going to fund us again. Yeah. So actually from that point of view, it failed. In terms of participation, it was a conflicted success in that actually a lot of different people interacted, but they were all the same people that we always interact with. Yeah. Um, and so we didn't get anybody new. Yeah. And so what it encourages is people to both map this out in advance, but then also to recognize that a project isn't a success or a failure. Yeah. It is multifaceted. It's five different areas of success or failure. And in each of them, it's differing degrees. So we've designed this tool. We've also designed postcards of failure, which we yeah. encourage people to send postcards to people um, apologizing or just admitting about a failure that they've never been able to admit before. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we've also worked with a um, research artist, um, Lucy Wright, yeah. um, and she's worked with us all the way through. And one of the things that came out was the, this double narrative. Everybody said, we all know this. We all know that people are lying on their valuations. The funders know, the arts organizations know, the artists know, everybody knows. We all know that projects are not going to be sustainable. Um, we know when we give the funding and we say this is going to have a legacy. We all know it's not going to have a legacy. We all know that it's going to fold at the end of this. But what we were interested in was that dual narrative that actually, nice. despite the fact that everybody told us that they knew that the common narrative was lying or yeah. was false, yeah. that it didn't change. And so what we've done is 
what we found quite interesting there is it kind of reminds us, like somebody said, this is a really simple story and we actually all know how it works. And so what we've created is a children's book. And so it's an illustrated nice. children's book. Yeah. Um, and it's called Welcome to the Cultural Desert. And it describes a, a kind of a, a participation project within yeah. the world. Yeah. And there's two sets of text. So one set of text is how we generally officially talk about it. Yeah. But the other set of text, so each picture has two, the other set of text is the, what we talk about ourselves and what we oh, know nice. to be true. And so the point of it is contrasting the images with these yeah. two ways of talking about it. Yeah. Um, and so that's also available on the website. And we've also, at the moment, we are recording some uh, vignettes taken directly out of our interviews. Yeah. And so collectively what we're doing is creating our website. Um, yeah. And the, the website will have a range of different tools on it to try to encourage people to have workshops where they talk about failure, um, whether that's with their participants, whether that's with their funders. So I guess in answer to the question about what research is needed next, it's action research to go, okay, let's see what happens if we can start to have some of these conversations. Does it mean that we change what we do? Does it mean that we start to change how we fund or yeah. what we fund? Or does it mean that we actually have a discussion with people and they say, look, do you know what? I am totally fine because I've got Netflix. So yeah. bash on with your theatre. Good luck to you. You really don't need to worry about me. It's all, it's all good. There is, yeah. There's no problem here. Yeah. But, but actually, let's have some of those discussions. So I think for me, and I think it's a lacking in the cultural policy sector in general, is a lack of action research. Yeah. There is this real sense in the cultural sector that we have to prove everything first before we do anything. Um, as opposed to saying, let's change some stuff and then see what happens. Um, and I think that that's what's needed. It's, that is absolutely fantastic. We're run, well, I'm aware we're running out of time. Um, so for you, what are next steps in, you know, in the wonderful academic world? You're now, uh, you know, becoming a children's author. Um, <laughs> and, in, in the next five years, you know, give it in, um, you know, we've got five minutes. Um, what, are, what are your goals and dreams? You know, I know that you're part of the Centre of Cultural Value. Does that kind of weave into the next five years of your life? And um, just for our listeners, the uh, Centre of Cultural Value is at the University of Leeds and um, David is one of the associate directors of that. So in, in, um, in, in finishing off, what, what are your goals for the next five years? Where are you heading? Gosh, what are my goals? I mean, I guess one of my goals is, is to get married. I should have got married this year during yeah. COVID. So I think that needs to be top of the list. Um, That's a good idea. Partner, yeah, my, my, my partner, Danny, would never forgive me if, yeah. uh, if that wasn't there. So, but I think in terms of, in terms of professionally, um, in terms of my research, I mean, you know, as, a, as an academic, as someone working in a university, you know, I, I fundamentally believe our role is to, is to challenge, is to, um, is to be an objective eye, is sometimes yeah. to be a fly in the ointment. Um, yeah. Because actually, people have jobs, people have, you know, their lives, and it's very difficult to ask awkward questions if your job depends on it. Yeah. So, I, you know, continuing to ask those awkward questions. But I would like to see change. You know, fundamentally, there's a point at which you have to go, you've been shouting about this for long enough, but nobody's paying any attention. Yeah. I have to start asking myself, am I failing? Um, you know, I have, to, I have to turn my, my wheel on myself. Yeah. But yeah, what would, I like to, what would I like to see? There's a few things. Um, I'd like to see or I'd like to affect cultural policy in a way that we realise that rich cultural lives are the indication of a wider policy sphere working well. Yeah. Um, and what I mean by that is that 
for you know, for most of the time that we've had any sort of cultural policy, we see cultural policy as serving other means. So, for example, we might we might see it as making people um, be productive or making sure that people's well-being is, uh, you know, uh, looking good so that they're able to continue to work or making sure that they're contributing to the economy. Fundamentally, for me, it's about trying to flip that on its head to say, why do we want to make money? Why does a country want to make money? Why do I want to make money? Why do I want to have a house? Why do I want to be secure? Why do I need to have a job? Why do I want to be healthy? I want to be all those things because I want to be human. Yeah. And part of being human is the ability to express myself culturally, to express what has value and meaning to me, um, to engage in it fully and freely, um, and to be able to do that in a way that I feel secure. And so for me, there's a real challenge in policy that says, not how can culture deliver for every other policy sector, but actually how can every other cultural every other policy sector deliver for culture? So how does health policy deliver for culture? Is it enough to get someone healthy or well enough that they can go home, make a cup of tea, and maybe kind of get back to the couch? Or actually, do we set the bar higher and say, this person was a dancer? Or actually, this person, you know, they, they love to craft. And actually getting them well means getting them back to that life. Yeah. Um, and if we look at someone's economics, if we look at the amount of money someone brings in, or if we're thinking about what the basic salary is, you know, often you hear people talk about, you know, the basic basket that you need in living. And, you know, in there are things like, you know, milk and bread and various basic standards. And whenever somebody says something like, oh, you know, um, somebody's spent their, their state support or the money they've got from the government on a, um, on a Netflix subscription, everybody sort of, well, not everybody, there's, there's sort of media outroar that says, well, that's a waste. For me, we need to get to the point where we go, actually, having a cultural life isn't a luxury. It's a basic standard. Yeah. And actually, if people's, if people's own security, if people's own economic situation means that they cannot have a cultural life, then economic policy is failing. Yeah. So I, I think essentially what I've described in what I want to achieve in the next five years appears to be some sort of social revolution. Um, and uh, and I'm conscious that I've, <laughs> yeah, I, I'm conscious that I've, I've probably moved myself. You know, that's 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 possibly a goal that I've I've gone quite broad. But let's go big. Let's go big. So yeah, that that's my aspiration for the next five years is to is to wholesale turn on its head the reason um, that we that we that we enact policies in, in all the fields because actually I think a cult, I think a country that's doing it right has citizens who are culturally expressive. It's yeah. it's not a problem to be fixed. It's an indicator of our collective success as democratic liberal societies. Thank you, David. And thank you for a fantastic interview. It was wonderful chatting to you. You gave us all so much to think about. Um, it was an absolute pleasure and thank you for your time. Not at all. Um, it's been very enjoyable. Thank you for inviting me. Katrina, my interview with David was extraordinary. Uh, David and I go a long way back, but it's always amazing. Every time I interview him uh, and talk to him about his work, I, I think one of the things that I really um, enjoyed what he mentioned about was when he was a shop assistant um, and learned all those audience engagement tools and how he's now using them and he's brought them all forward. I mean, I think that's really exciting. It just reminds us all, you know, our skills are transferable. Don't, you know, we, you know, we don't lose them just because the job title might change. And and sometimes the stuff we learn early on in our careers is actually even more important. Um, yeah, it was it's 
fascinating. David's work and what David talks about is absolutely fascinating. Absolutely. I loved this interview. I love listening to the the two of you. And what you're saying about transferable skills resonates with me because my original training is as a marketer. And so I really related to what David was saying about being driven by the market. And it's this two-way dialogue, this dance that you have with your customers. And it was just really interesting to hear him talk about the novelty of this approach as it pertains to the cultural world. Um, because of course, in the world of retail and the world of product marketing, it's so natural. But in as he applies this into the cultural world it has this novel aspect to it oh yeah and one of the things with this just uh the research that he's just currently doing around failure i mean i think that is just so significant and so huge and um you know as someone who's worked in the sector as a senior manager and had to fill in grant forms you know I, we certainly um rounded up than rather than rounded down that's for sure as I said in the interview and uh, yeah it's just how the fear that we have in the cultural sector to measure something and go you know what failure is okay we can learn from that the fear we have in that is extraordinary so his research is incredibly interesting and for, um, you know for those of you that are more interested in this he's they've actually written a paper and it's and um, we'll put it on the Art for Conversations website, and so the link will be there. That sounds amazing. I made so many notes about this topic of, of failure, and um, I had this image of him dropping the failure bomb at a cocktail party in academia and having it explode in the middle of this party, <laughs> um, which I just thought was amazing. Um, and the, the courage, you know, the courage needed to, to do that is, is huge. Um, I also really like this line that he said. He said, being an academic isn't about knowing everything about a subject. It's about knowing how to explore a subject. And I love that comment. And I've really experienced that in my own work. And I think this is a great message for students. It's about following your curiosity, exploring something. Even if you don't know anything about it right now, you're going to learn as you go. So I thought that was a fantastic message that David conveyed for, for us and for our students. This show was created by executive producer and host Annetta Latham, co-host Katrina Ingram, and technical producer Paul Johnson. Research assistants involved were Caitlin McKinnon and McEwen Bachelor of Music students. Theme music by Emily Darfour and cover by Constanza Patcher. Special thanks to the Rosé Foundation for their support and to our guests. Artful Conversations is a production of McEwen University. All rights reserved.